Amen. Well, hello, church. Today we are wrapping up our series through selected passages from Isaiah. We'll be in Isaiah 66. But after this week, for all of the month of September, Pastor Albert will be preaching our annual senior pastor series. So that will be uh, for all of September. The focus will be on Psalm 23. And I think that's important because as we are talking about church planning, as we're experiencing God's blessing of growth, and as we're going through good organizational, uh, trying to tackle good organizational challenges, it's important that we are anchored in our good shepherd. So it's not just go, 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 do, 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 but it's about who we are in Christ. And after we finish the Senior Pastor Series, starting from October to December, we will embark upon an expositional series preaching through the book of Colossians. And the reason why we chose Colossians is, once again, as we're focusing on outreach and expansion and growth, it's important that we remember as God's people that we fall under the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that Christ is supreme. We care most about where we stand with Christ. And so that's a little bit of where we're headed. That's the destination. And when it comes to our spiritual lives, our eternal destination is determined by decisions that you and I make today. Do we respond to Christ? The spiritual condition of our hearts today, in other words, determines our, in, our eternal destination. So if you have God's word, meet me now in Isaiah chapter 66. I've entitled the message, The Conclusion. Nothing fa fancy. It is the conclusion. But this passage also entails the conclusion of our eternal destiny. So we'll start there, Isaiah chapter 66. This final chapter encompasses the summative themes of the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at various verses from Isaiah 66, but the first truth that I want you to see this morning from Isaiah 66 is the earthly dwelling place of God. What we've seen in Isaiah is that we've been studying the attributes of God. That's why we did not choose to go through all 66 books that would have taken five years for us at our expositional pace. But when you look at Isaiah, you look at different aspects of God. So you learn about a God who's infinite, who's holy, who's unchanging, all-powerful, and he cannot be contained. But yet we see throughout the book of Isaiah that Isaiah sees his people. And in the context of Isaiah, it's the people of Judah, the Old Testament people of God. And he desires to dwell among them. In fact, he desires to dwell within them. But he sees, starting in chapter 1, that they're going through the motions, that they're literally actually applying the words of the Bible. Imagine just going and applying the, the commands of the Bible, going to the temple, offering up sacrifices, yet God looked in their heart and he says, I cannot dwell in your heart because you're fake. You're just going through the motions. You don't truly love me. You just want to be saved from hell. You just want to be declared forgiven so there's not this guilty feeling. And so therefore you go to church in Old Testament context, it would be go to the temple and offer animal sacrifices. You're just going through the motions, but you don't really love me. Right? So the first thing we're going to see is the earthly dwelling place of God. And what I want you to see is the infinite, sovereign, uncontainable God is not interested in buildings and temples. He's interested in human hearts. That's where he desires to dwell now. Look with me at verse 1. 
Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? First, we know that the Lord, the New Testament reveals to us that the Lord is the title attributed to Jesus Christ. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ making a divine declaration that heaven is his throne. Now for us, the idea of heaven is immense. God is timeless. That's how he exists outside of time and space. He cannot be limited or contained. He's infinite. He's also spirit in nature. We know that he reveals to himself to us through Jesus Christ. And in Jesus' earthly life, you have this human being containing the infinite God. But really, God in his own character is infinite. He's spirit. He cannot be contained. But yet it says heaven is his throne. His throne is not a, an earthly seat or a chair. It is heaven itself. And it describes earth as his footstool. And earth is immense to us when we consider the earth and we consider ourselves. That means that we're tiny because the earth is huge to us. But yet God looks at the earth as merely his footstool. That gives you a picture of how infinite God is. And then he says, how foolish it is for man to build a temple to contain an infinite God. It's, a, it's really, that's the spirit behind the text. It says, what is this house? that you would build for me. What house? How can you contain that being which is uncontainable? What is the place of my rest? Now, stick with me on this because God desires to rest in the hearts of people. He desires to dwell somewhere. And ironically, it's God dwelling in us and among us that gives us rest. But he says, where is the place of my rest? I am looking for a figurative, symbolic home, a place to dwell. And so this is God speaking figuratively, right? And 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon, who built the glorious temple of the Old Testament, even Solomon knew that the temple that he would build is just figurative, that the temple was not the place that could contain the full glory of God. Here's what Solomon said in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I built. So even Solomon knew that the temple that he was building could not contain God. He understood that the temple was just a type. It was a type of dwelling place for God. And eventually, the New Testament dwelling place of God would be our hearts, the spiritual temple of God. And Jesus is the dwelling tabernacle who dwelled among men. And when Jesus lives in our hearts, it's like God dwelling in our hearts. But ultimately, that too is just symbolic because God himself dwells in heaven. And one day, God will not only dwell in our hearts, but we will dwell immediately in his immediate presence for all eternity. And so when you look at verse 2, it begins to, it begins to show us that God is looking at hearts. He's looking at a place to rest. And first it says, God created everything. So verse 2, the first part, it says, All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Now, you might ask the question, well, human beings have ingenuity, and human beings create things too. There's inventions and inventors and technology. But when you think about it, 
Human beings need the raw materials given to us from God, right? We can't create anything without God first giving us the raw, raw materials that we then create and re-engineer and we create something. But anything that truly has life, anything that we create, it's ultimately, it ultimately traces back to God. God created all things. And the person that God wants to dwell within has to understand that he created all things. And that leads to the second part of verse 2, which tells us a description of the true worshiper. You see the themes of Isaiah come alive now. You see this infinite God who's looking at his people, and he says, I want to dwell among Judah, but you guys are far from me. You guys are just going through the motions, and that's detestable uh, to me as God, but I, God, love you and want to dwell among you. And so I'm looking at my people, looking at their hearts, and I can tell who the true worshipers are, and I can tell who the false worshipers are. I can tell the people who are... Not sinless, they make mistakes, but they truly love me, and they come back to me, and they listen to my word, and I can tell the people who obey my word, but they don't really listen to my word at the heart. They go to the temple, and they, they obey the instructions, but they don't really love me. Their worship is meaningless. You've seen this throughout Isaiah. And so here it is, second part of verse 2. It says, but this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles on my word. <clears throat> you see the connective? Humble means also that you're contrite in spirit. And, well, God, what does that look like? What does true humility look like? Well, one who trembles at my word. Not just one who knows my word. Not just one who obeys my word in the sense of going through, you know, just the motions of it. But one who truly trembles at my word. God looks upon... Each person, he knows our hearts. He knows our motives, our intentions. You see where God wants to dwell? He wants to dwell in the heart. The heart is the true sanctuary of God because the heart is where our motives and intentions lie. Whether or not we truly worship God, is, it doesn't matter what building you're in or it doesn't matter what city you're in, Jerusalem. It doesn't matter what motions you're going through externally. He looks right into the heart, and he knows who's humble and broken. Contrite in spirit simply means that there's genuine remorse and conviction over sin, not just guilt. Oh, I feel guilty that I sin because I want to feel good, like I want to not have that guilt, so God, will you forgive me? That's not a saved person. Another example of a false worshiper is I just want to escape God's judgment in hell, so that's why I worship God. That's a false believer too. The genuine believer actually says, I am broken over my sin because I've sinned against a God who loves me and who's been good to me and I don't deserve his grace. And so I do sin and I do struggle, but I come before God contrite, not just in actions, but first in spirit. And so how do I know that I'm contrite in spirit while well, I tremble at his words. I don't just take his words as just, a, a, you know, magical five steps. If I follow these, you know, five commands, then I'll get into heaven. I don't just look at his word as, as intellectual instruction. Uh, I really tremble at his word because I love him. I care about what he has to say to me. When he speaks, I'm listening because I love him. I'm not ignoring him. I, I, I don't just, I tremble at it. I don't just take it lightly like Judah, many in Judah. To tremble doesn't mean that you're completely terrified. 
and just shaking. It literally means to have a reverence for God's word, that you surrender your heart to the word of God, that you take God's word seriously when it's revealed to you and when you study it. In fact, Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, let me just read it into your hearing because I want you to hear it. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, it says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell, God says, in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a, of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So the, the low person is broken over their sins and they're honest about their sins and they see themselves as lowly. They're not proud or arrogant. They don't see themselves as better than other people too. Right? They're not just religious folk like, hey, I'm better than that evil sinner over there because look at me, I do all the right things. I'm a Christian and that evil sinner, ugh, I'm a better person. That's not being lowly. But, but, but God says, I take the person that's lowly and I exalt them. I take the person that's contrite and their hearts are broken over their sins and I revive their hearts, giving them spiritual renewal. See, that's the picture that we see. The true sanctuary of God, God wants to do his work in the human heart because that's where true worship is determined. So we've seen a God who's infinite and who can't be contained, yet he wants to be contained somewhere. Right? He wants to dwell somewhere, not in a building, not in a house. He wants to dwell among us, not just among us. He wants to dwell within us. And he's looking for true worshipers to dwell in our hearts. And then in verse 3, though, we see this contrast of false worshipers. And this is actually summative of all of Isaiah. Let me read this to you, verse 3. It says, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering, like the one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul, that's the heart, right? Their inner being, their soul delights in their abominations. So imagine that. You're going to God, and you're sacrificing an ox, an animal sacrifice. And you're basically saying to God, God, I'm just doing what Leviticus or the Old Testament tells me to do. I'm obeying your word by showing up to church with my offering. And God says, look, you know what? You're listening to the words, but you're offering this animal. And, but when I see it, it's you're a murderer. You're killing a man. You're like, what? You're, look, a lamb is a really good offering. I'm sacrificing a lamb. And he's like, you know what? It's, it's like breaking a dog's neck. Now that has to be explained because we love dogs. Now, I'm a dogmatic person, or I used to be, so I love dogs. Um, my favorite dog is dogma. That's theology. But basically, <laughs> but, but, but basically um, any, a dog, back in those days, they weren't Americans, okay? They would consider dogs unclean animals. Yeah, yeah, your little puppy, unclean. You know, so, so if you were to actually, if you couldn't afford a lamb and you would bring a dog, they would break its neck. And so the idea there is you're, you're offering me an unacceptable offering. A, a dog with a broken neck. Now, we love dogs, so don't break any dog's necks. Okay, but that's the idea there. And, and, and so you see it. It's like you're offering this fragrance, but it's disgusting to him. You're offering this grain offering, and it's completely rejected. Uh, pigs, pigs are unclean animals. 
Now, as, as someone who's uh, Asian-American, I love pigs, right? I haven't met one Chinese person who doesn't eat pigs, you know, unless they're vegetarian. So I know right here that this is speaking of Gentiles, uh, but pig's blood, which we also love to eat in our dim sum, you know, pig's blood is even more offensive. So it's like you're bringing this grain offering, but God is like, you're bringing this detestable, unclean swine of an animal to me. And not only that, but it's blood, pig's blood. How offensive. And so you get the picture of of everything that you're offering him, even though you're following the Old Testament command to a T, God looks at it and he says, that's an abomination to me. You bring this fragrance of frankincense, and he's like, you're like worshiping in an idol. It's like you're blessing an idol. And then it says, because your soul delights in their abominations. No, 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 God. My soul delights in obeying your word. Look, I'm following exactly what you're telling me to do. No, you're not, because I know your heart, God says. You don't tremble at my word. You take it lightly. The soul that loves God trembles at his word, surrenders to the word of God, and really doesn't just obey it, but really loves God. It's the love for God that brings about the genuine obedience. And then in verse 4, we see the judgment upon false believers, false worshipers. It says, I also will choose harsh treatment for them. But God, we listen to your word. Yeah, but you didn't love me, right? You, you weren't true, genuine believers, I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So this is the exact opposite of the person who trembles at God's word. The person that God looks upon in, the person's heart who God wants to dwell in trembles at the word of God. The opposite is I don't listen to God's word. I go through the motions and they just go live in the world and chase and pursue the world. And I chose to delight in the world rather than to, to delight in God, right? And to do what is evil. Now, we know that, that this passage is speaking of false worshipers among the commonwealth of Israel in the Old Testament. But when you apply this figuratively, or I mean, in reality, you take the figurative language and you apply it to the rest of the Bible. This applies to anybody who does not worship Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so this is all of us prior to being saved. And for some of you who don't know Jesus today, the gospel presents the bad news, then the good news, right? The gospel is the good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to pay for our sins, but the bad news is that we are sinners. We are sinners in need of God's grace. And so first thing that we see is the earthly dwelling place of God, that God truly wants to dwell in our hearts, but sin is there. And an infinite, sinless God, a holy God, cannot dwell in our hearts unless a sacrifice is made. And so Isaiah 52 and 53, we read and heard about the suffering servant who paid the penalty for our sin. But the second truth we want to see today is not just the earthly dwelling place of God, but the eternal dwelling place of man. Where is our eternal destination? The conclusion after the conclusion of our earthly lives. Where are we finally headed? So the eternal dwelling place of man. Now, verses 15 and 16 speak figuratively of God's coming judgment upon false worshipers. Now, I just want to read this into your hearing. As I read it, I want you to notice fiery judgment. This is not just symbolic. This is not just Dante's infernal. This is God's word. And three times you see the theme of fire. Okay? So it says, verse 15, 
For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and, and his chariots, like the whirlwind, render his anger and fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. And by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. And I read this, I'm like, God, you're on fire. I mean, just boom, 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 boom. You know, it's like, God, you know, fire is pretty scary. It's terrifying how fast and with the whirlwind it comes. And so I believe this is figuratively speaking to warn us today of a literal judgment that's coming in eternity. That as, as God people, as, as the people of God hear this, they behold the Lord, he will come. And he'll come like a fire in judgment. And, and, and he's going to come and, and he's going to lay his wrath down on all those who just go through the motions and anybody who rejects Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so that is the eternal dwelling place of false worshipers. We'll come back to this. Okay, but this is the eternal dwelling place of false worshipers. Is This, in a sense, verses 15 and 16, is a foretaste of hell. And so for anybody who says, oh, hell is not real, I mean, just look at how many times the Lord repeats his fiery judgment. Even if you say it's symbolic, what is it symbolic of? You're like, well, fire is symbolic. And he said it three times, so it's symbolic of really hot? I don't know. You know, it's, it's painful torment. So even if you're, you're, you're like, well, I don't know if it's literal fire, well, then tell me if it's not literal fire, I'm okay with that. Well, what type of torment is it then? And again, remember, we are eternal beings. There's an eternal God, eternal God, and when the relationship with the eternal God is broken, the eternal soul, the soul that's designed to live forever, is separate from that God. And so there's eternal death, eternal judgment, right? So there's this, so even if it's not literal fire, okay, it's an eternal soul, uh, torment of the soul, of the soul. Right, because that's what God is looking at. He's looking at the heart. So let me show you this. Um, you look at verses 22 to 23. You just jump down, and it says, this is for the true worshipers. So there's the eternal dwelling place for false worshipers and unbelievers, and there's the true dwelling place, the eternal dwelling place of true worshipers. It says, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. You see that? That there's this offspring, and it says your name will remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come and worship before me, declares the Lord. So there's this eternal soul that's either going to worship God or it's either going to be tormented for eternity. All right? And Revelation 21 describes a new heavens and a new earth. And Bible students, what is, there's a new city that comes out in Revelation 21, 22. What's the name of that city? The new Jerusalem. And so in the context of Isaiah, he's writing to the old Jerusalem where there's false worship and where the people are constantly turning away from God. Uh, but that points towards there's a new Jerusalem where when it says offspring of God, this is talking about you and me included. This is every genuine Old Testament saint that trusted in the promise of Christ before he was revealed. And then every genuine New Testament saint who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior after he's revealed, right? And so this is the offspring of God, the children of God, that your name remain. And when it says new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, these are themes from Isaiah chapter 1, if you'll remember. In Isaiah, of course you don't, but Isaiah chapter, I don't either until I 
studied it, right? Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, Isaiah rebuked Judah for celebrating these two feasts, but just going through the motions. You see, the new moon is basically dedicating a month to God at the beginning of the month. So before the, mo- the month starts, you think of the new moon, and you're like, I'm, we're celebrating this festival to put God as our number one priority, to put God first, essentially. And it's really theologically about the right ordering of things. So what, what this is saying is that in the new heavens and new earth, the true worshipers of God will be there. It will be a new Jerusalem. They will worship eternally and forever, and all of the right things will be put into the right order, meaning God will be first. Right? There's a right ordering of things. All things that, have, that sin has brought about in terms of disorder is rightly ordered. And when you look at from Sabbath to Sabbath, that's, what does that mean? Sabbath to Sabbath, from rest to rest. This is the eternal rest. And that's why I meant we were created to live in the, in the presence of God. We were created to live in the eternal rest of God because you're in his presence. He's an eternal God. He offers you eternal Sabbath. And if that relationship was not severed by sin, you would continually be related to him and you would be in his presence and you would experience Sabbath to Sabbath. Well, when we get to the new heavens and earth, brothers and sisters, it will be from rest to rest. So isn't that interesting that he looks at a place to rest, right? He says, this is a God who is infinite. He does not have to work. And he says, where will I rest? And he says, the one who is humble and contrite at heart and trembles at my word. That's where he wants to rest. And so in many ways, the Lord gives us rest. But because we're sinful, right, we struggle. And then so we we don't experience that rest and we come back to him. But the way we think of Sabbath, how do we think of Sabbath? We think of Sabbath as just a once in a week thing that we attend, an event that we attend. Maybe we might say worship, and you know, you're genuinely worshiping God for that one hour, hearing the Word of God, and then we go back to our regular lives, which might be work or whatever it might be for you, right? And then we go back in Sabbath, and because we're in a fallen world, and because our hearts are being redeemed, we need that constant rhythm. We still have to work because it's a consequence of the fall, but yet we go back and it recalibrates our hearts. But that's not what we were created for. We were created not just for God to live in our hearts, but we were to created to Sabbath forever. You understand that? That God created earth in six days. Six days, right? He created the earth in six days, and the seventh day, he what? He rested, and then he created who? Adam and Eve, man. And so if there was no sin, you were, you were supposed to live in that seventh day. If there was no sin, you're just supposed to, he, he created, he did all the work, and then he rested. And we were created to just live in his rest. But then sin entered. And so then we, we lose that Sabbath, you see. But when you turn this on its head and aim it at the hearts of the people of the Old Testament, they were honoring the new moon, and they were honoring the Sabbath, but they weren't really resting in the promises of God. They were turning to foreign nations. They're desiring military power. They're desiring the best that the world has to offer. They weren't truly resting in God. And they did not have rest. They were constantly enslaved and exiled because they refuse to surrender to the Lord of the Sabbath. So just because, so translate that to today, just because people go to church doesn't mean that they truly have a saving relationship with Jesus, right? I mean, I learned that growing up. That church attendance doesn't save. 
In fact, you can miss church because you're sick, right? Or because you have to travel. And, and what matters is your heart, not just on Sunday. Sunday is just a reflection of, of, of the fact that you have God resting in your heart. That every single challenge and struggle that you go through in life, that you're able to say, okay, God, I'm really stressed out about work. I'm really stressed out about my health. Or I'm kind of stressed out about my children. Or I'm really stressed out about this relationship or school or whatever it might be. But then you say, God, I'm going to surrender that to you because I tremble at your word. Your word tells me that you're infinite, that you're my shepherd. Your word tells me that I need to confess my sins. Your word tells me that I need to find fulfillment in you. So I continue to surrender to you. And because of that, you give me Sabbath, not just on Sundays, but true resting in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. And so God is looking for people who are going to go through the rhythm that prepares us for what we're going to experience in eternity. Right now, we struggle to find rest in God. But in eternity, that struggle is going to disappear where we're like, this is what I've been working at and practicing all my life, trying to surrender my heart fully to the Lord. I know I've surrendered it, but I'm still struggling at times. And finally, you know, I, I get seasons of rest. I got to go to a retreat. I got to go Sunday and listen to the word. I got to go back into my prayer closet. But finally, now, all things are rightly ordered from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh, that's talking about believers in heaven, shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. That is the eternal destiny. That is the eternal dwelling place of man is in the presence of God if you believe in Jesus Christ. Now we go back to the false believer or those who have yet to give their lives to Jesus. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, I want you to notice as I read it into your hearing uh, that the distinction between the righteous and unrighteous, it doesn't disappear in the new heavens and the earth. Do you realize that? The false believer and the true believer, it still remains. The true believer and the unbeliever, that distinction remains forever. Why? Because the soul is created to live forever. Why is the soul created to live forever? Because the creator of our soul is eternal. So if our creator is eternal, when he creates our souls, it was meant to live forever. So that foreverness, that's not a word, but you know, that foreverness is either going to be experienced in the eternal worship in the presence of God or in hell. And I, you know, I say that with love and you know that, right? Uh, that if you're here this morning, just there's a beckon, there's a call to turn to Christ now, right? But look at verse 24. It says, they, this is talking about the believers, okay, the true worshipers, figuratively coming out of the spiritual temple. They shall go out of the temple. It doesn't say that, but that's the idea. And they'll look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. It's not just men. It's men and women. Uh, rebelled against me. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So rebelling against Christ, including not, that includes unbelievers who don't worship him, right? For their worm, that's real weird. Their worms shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence. That's a big word, to all flesh. Now, I, I really had to study this verse because I had to preach in Mandarin, and in the Mandarin translation, uh, when it says their worm, it's just the word for bug. Tamen the tong, right? And, and so that's just like, it can mean a million bugs, you know? But when, when you look at the English, it translates the Hebrew correctly. And the Hebrew construct, this is a singular construct for you nerds. This is a Hebrew singular construct, means 
when, when this is a picture, the worm is a picture of judgment. It's an idea of, of the decomposition of your body. When you die, your body decomposes, and then the worms gnaw at your flesh, correct? Okay, anybody work at Rose Hills in the mortuary? Okay, well, no, no, by, the time, by that time that happens, you're in the ground, right? Because Rose Hills does such a good job with embalmment. So, but notice that it doesn't say that they're worms, but it's personal. It says they're singular worm. And then it says, their fire, right? Their fire shall not be quenched, meaning it never ends. It's eternal. In Chinese, it's time in the hole. Again, when you say that, it's like, oh, it's just fire. It could be big fire, little fire, right? You need some qualifiers. But in English, I had to look at that. I'm like, this is weird. It's just their fire. Like, you are my fire, right? Like, your fire. You know, so you know what this is theologically? It's that each and every individual will be judged for our deeds of whether or not we receive or reject Jesus Christ. Every single person will come before the presence of God and they will need to determine whether or not they truly love God or not. It's about the motives of the heart. And God says, look, if you don't turn to me, then your worm is waiting for you, and it's going to gnaw at your flesh, and that worm, that's gross, that worm is not going to die. That's what it says. Shall not die. And so for anybody who says, Hanley, I don't believe in eternal hell, tell me, even if this is symbolic, it's still speaking. How is this not speaking of something that's eternal? Annihilationism does not exist. It's not that you just go before God, and he says, okay, you know, you don't get to go into heaven, so you just get destroyed, and that's it. No, there's actually, because our souls are eternal, because the soul cannot die, because the God who created the soul is eternal and living, and because it bears his image, it cannot die. And so it either has to live with him or be judged forever. I mean, just hear me on this, on the gospel, right? The good news is that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, died on the cross bore our sins in our place to save our souls. That's why he had to die, because he's eternal. It took the payment of the death of the eternal God temporarily, then being resurrected, to pay for our eternal souls. And so if this doesn't speak of an eternal judgment, I don't know how else to convey it. Their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence. That means hatred. But I've never heard anybody in regular speech, I abhor cheese, <laughs> you know? I abhor the San Francisco Giants. I don't, you know, but, you know, but as a Dodger fan, you know, just, you use the word hate, right? But to say abhorrence, I, I think it's greater than hatred. And this is just to show that not that God hates people, but a holy God cannot dwell among a sinful people. And Isaiah's audience needed to understand this truth. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And this encompasses every single uh, unbeliever. When it says all flesh in this context, it's talking about all believers. Some say it's just everyone. Everyone looks at this future torment of souls and they're abhorred by it. They're repulsed by it, right? And so this is not meant to scare you. But actually in Mark chapter 9, verse 48, 
Mark 9, 48, Jesus, that's the passage where Jesus is talking about taking sin seriously, right? He says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, then cut it off. If your, if your eye causes you to stumble uh, or lust, pull it out, right? It's not literally saying pull your eyeballs out and cut off your hands. That's not what it's saying. It's saying take sin seriously, especially at the heart level, because God cares about that. And in that same passage, Jesus himself quotes Isaiah 66, 24, and he says, he talks about being thrown into hell, and that's the word in the Bible. That's not made by, you know, the Puritans. The Puritans didn't invent the word hell, but it's actually in there. And in, in Mark 9, 48, it says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Mark quotes this passage in Isaiah. Jesus quotes this passage in Isaiah. Then in Revelation 14, Revelation 14, verse 11, it describes how the redeemed can see the smoke unredeemed souls being torn, of unredeemed souls. I mean, this is just, you're like, God, you're a God of love. Like, how, what is this? You know, but, but, but a God of, of love has to deal with sin. A God who is indifferent to sin, a God who ignores sin and doesn't judge sin is not a God of love, right? If, if somebody committed a crime against someone that you loved and then the justice system says, oh, whatever, you know, slap on the wrist, you know, send them to the LA, you know, LA city guy, right? Like, whatever. Gascon, you know, nothing, just, <laughs> right? And how would you feel? How would you feel, honestly? You would say, God, you don't really love. But right and fair judgment from a righteous and holy God, that is love. And so, so when you see how this is described, Revelation 14 11, it describes these unredeemed souls being judged forever and ever because they've rebelled against God in Revelation 14, in that passage, the Apostle John is also reflecting echoes of Isaiah. So the big idea of this morning's message is where you dwell for eternity is determined by whether Christ dwells in your heart today. Where you dwell for eternity is, whether, is determined by whether Christ dwells in your heart today. Does he dwell in your heart today? This passage is clear. True worshipers will dwell with Christ in the new creation. False worshipers and unbelievers will dwell in eternal judgment. For those of you who are new to Christianity, these are fair questions that I'm going to ask because I ask these. How is God just? How is God fair? How is God loving in describing how he's judging these people? You see, here's the best way we can understand it. And even in our understanding, we are finite. He's infinite. So we cannot fully understand it full. But here's how I understand it. And you've heard this explained from theologians such as John Piper. Uh, John Piper learned it from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards learned it from Augustine, Calvin and Augustine. They learned it from Paul. Paul learned it from Jesus. Okay, that's logic, right? So when you sin against a human being, justice entails fair punishment. So I think all of us would agree, okay, that if you take a human life, what's fair? that your life be taken, right? Either life in prison, that's why there's such a thing, or the death penalty. So regardless of your view on capital punishment, life in prison or capital punishment, right? A life for life. Why? Because you took a life. And if you took multiple lives, then there's a you know, higher chance that you're going to get the death penalty. 
But if a 16-year-old kid steals cash and you give them the death penalty, that's unjust. That's unfair. Unfair, right? We'd all agree. The sobering reality is that when you sin against an eternal being, what's just and fair is eternal punishment. That's why it's an eternal punishment. Because you're not sinning against a finite being that might live from 60 to 80 to 100 years old. You are sinning and rejecting an eternal being that has given you an eternal soul. So when you reject Christ and rather you choose eternal rejection and eternal death, then that's the punishment. That's why it's just. And it, it, it no longer is about fairness, the question, the discussion shifts quickly into mercy, right? Because I used examples of murder and stealing, and those are crimes. But there are many sins that are not illegal according to the law of the state. For example, you can lust, you can commit adultery, you can commit idolatry, be proud, pursue the, 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 the comfort, the wealth, and the riches of this world. You can be arrogant and reject God, all sins that we see in the prophets, right, or, or revealed in the books of the prophets. You can worship the idols of this world. None of these sins will get you in trouble with the law of the land. But all of these sins violate the law of God. And this is where Paul picks up on the idea that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has violated the law of God because the location where we violate the law of God begins in the heart. The exact place that Jesus wants to come in and he wants to dwell, right? And so a sacrifice needed to be made. And so again, like I mentioned, you, the question is about what is fair and what is not fair. That's out of, out of play now. Someone takes your life, their life deserves to be taken if they're proven guilty. Jesus Christ, guilty or innocent? Innocent. Completely loving and sinless. Dying for his enemies. So when you take an eternal being, an eternal God, and you crucify him on a cross to pay for many guilty people, it's no longer about fairness. It's about mercy because he didn't have to do that. Fairness would be you and I on that cross for our sins and paying an eternal punishment because we've sinned against an eternal being and we've chosen eternal death for our souls. That's what's fair. What's unfair is an innocent son of God dying in our place for our sins. So the question is not about how is God fair, it's how merciful is God? How merciful is our God that he didn't have to die for a single one of us, but he did, and God raised him from the dead. And so if you're new to Christianity, that is the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died to redeem your soul because it's eternal either way. Eternal death or eternal life, he offers eternal life for anyone who will turn to him today. Don't wait. But for those of us who are believers, the question I want to ask is why do we worship? Why do we worship? Right? So the first question that I wanted to address was how is God just and fair? Right? And, and we answer it's about his mercy. But for believers, why do we worship? We go through the motions of life. I'm talking to Christians now. You go through the motions of life and you have to be honest, life is a struggle. Anybody in here raise your hands as life is a breeze? 
It is. Life is a breeze. Well, that's very positive thinking. Okay, but, you know, but life is a struggle, right? You're either going to struggle with your health. You're going to struggle maybe financially. Some of you, you, you're like, I'm financially good, but my body's falling apart. You're going to struggle with relationships. You're going to struggle. And you know what? Every week it's a struggle. In fact, it's a challenge. Even if life is good, like financially, if you're okay and health decent, and maybe you're raising young kids, you're like, I'm so tired. Anybody here not tired? You're so tired. You're like, I'm going to this, I'm going to this, I'm going to work. And, and life is not easy. But if life was easy, I guarantee you, you'd be so bored. If God took away every challenge, you'd be sitting at home, bored, looking for something, either something sinful that entices the sinful parts of your lust and your soul, or you would just try to go after something in this world to entertain yourself. Because we were created to be eternal. We were created to gaze upon the presence of an eternal God. That's why he never gets boring, because he's eternal and we are finite. We get bored because we're finite. This life is finite. Everything in this world is finite. But when you gaze upon a being that's infinite, you never get bored gazing upon him and worshiping because he's infinite. He's eternal. He's life-giving. And that's who our souls were created to worship and love and live for. And so, that, so this passage reveals to us that there is more to this world than just struggling for 65 to, or 40 years and retiring, or 65 years, you retire, you have health struggles. And you struggle 80, 85 years, 90 years, 100 years, you pass away, and it's like, what did you do in life? Oh, I just went through struggles and overcame challenges, and that's great. But that's not what your soul is created to live for. Or, or you're like, life is super easy. I was given a, a silver spoon. In fact, it was a golden spoon. And, you know, I didn't do anything in life. What a boring life. You know, and God looks at you and says, that's not what you were created to live for. We were created to live for an infinite God. Why do we settle for finite things and people? One day we will face this intimate God, infinite God. And my question is, where will we be? Where you dwell for eternity is determined by whether Christ truly dwells in your heart today or not. Don't wait. Turn to him. If you don't know Jesus Christ, take the opportunity today. Confess him as Lord and Savior. Believe in him. Surrender to him. Ask him to change your heart and repent. And he will save you because he's a merciful God who loves you. If you have questions, please come by the Next Steps table. We would love to engage you. And also, if, you're, if you want to receive Christ, talk to us, and we'll lead you to receive Christ. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Isaiah. And we've seen, Lord, today that where we dwell for eternity is determined by whether or not your son, Jesus Christ, dwells in our hearts today. Lord, I pray for anybody who doesn't know you, that you would save them. Save them now. Lord, through your grace and your mercy. And for those of us who believe, Lord, life is not easy, and so we struggle. But even if life were easy, for those seasons we get bored. And Lord, at the end of our lives, we look to why did you create us? Why were our souls, why are our souls eternal? And we see the answer in our passage. Father, I pray for God's people in this room today and listening online, watching online, that we would not give our lives pursuing the finite things of this world. That we would pursue an infinite God that continues to fill our hearts because you are infinite. 
You are eternal. So the wellspring of our souls cry out because a living God lives. And one day we will be in your presence. Help us to live for eternity. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.